The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 12, verse 17 through chapter 14, verse 5. So if you'll join me as I read. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his thorn and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it allowed to work in the presence of, the beast is deceived. The beast, it is allowed to work in the presence of, the beast It deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie has been found, for they are blameless. The word of the Lord. I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation 13 if you haven't done so already. Um, The book of Revelation has revealed to us our mission as the church. We are to live and die showing the world the worth of Christ through our words and our 
wounds. That's our mission throughout the entirety of the church age, from Christ's resurrection until he returns. But last week, we began asking, how are we going to be empowered and equipped to do that? To endure faithfully in that mission, especially when the enemy is doing all that he can to make us quit. And what we saw last week is that this is what chapters 12, 13, and 14 are specifically designed to do. They are designed to empower us, to equip us so that we may endure. You may remember last week, chapter 12, it empowered us by giving us a vision of our ultimate enemy, the dragon, Satan. We, we saw the spiritual reality that he is desperate because he has already been defeated. And that is meant to empower our endurance even when that enemy keeps coming at us. That's how chapter 12 ended, with him keeping just coming at us, trying to drown us in a flood of deception and persecution of words, deceiving us with words and wounds, persecuting us with wounds, words and wounds. Those are the weapons he uses to try to get us to quit instead of conquer. That is the spiritual reality. But are we equipped to recognize it in our earthly reality? Like, If Satan comes at us with words and wounds to get us to quit, how does he actually do that in our everyday? Are are, are we equipped to see how the enemy actually daily attacks us? Revelation 13 says he does it through beastly parodies. Beastly parodies. I've, um, I've told you many times before that my kids love Legos. As a matter of fact, they often want to use their own money to purchase more Legos. I don't know why. They have a billion. The problem, though, when they go to make these purchases on their own is that there are many companies out there that are Lego knockoffs. Like they're just parodies of the real thing. Cheap imitators that like suck you in with their heavily discounted prices. And the problem is that my kids are not equipped to spot the difference. I mean, like, you know, these companies do all they can to make the packaging look like it's the real thing. It's, it's deceptive, right? And if you're not equipped to decipher the difference, you will fall prey to the parody. Revelation 13 aims to equip us to decipher the difference. Not with Legos, but with who we bow down to as Lord in this life. Revelation 13 equips us so that we don't fall prey to the beastly parodies put forth by the enemy. This is how he attacks us. This is how the spiritual reality of Satan's words and wounds make their way into our earthly reality through beastly parodies. Are we equipped to recognize, see these parodies of our enemy in our daily reality? Shades, let's be equipped by Revelation 13. Start reading with me with the final sentence of chapter 12. It says, And the dragon stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. The dragon, Satan, our enemy. We're going to see in this vision right here him call forth two different beasts in this chapter. This one from the sea and another one from the land. These are his earthly agents. They have real earthly counterparts. These are his real earthly agents through whom he will work his wounds and words of persecution. His wounds of persecution, his words of deception. And chapter 13 equips us to recognize these beasts in reality so that we will not fall prey to them. It does so by showing us three things. Number one, These beasts are a parody of ultimate reality. These beasts are a parody of ultimate reality. Let's start with the beast who rises from the sea. We immediately know that he is the evil offspring of the dragon because there's a family resemblance, right? Remember how many heads and horns the dragon had from chapter 12? Seven heads, ten horns, same right here. With this beast, he's got ten horns and seven heads, just like the dragon did. He looks like the dragon, but he doesn't just look like the dragon. As we keep reading, he also kind of looks like the lamb out of Revelation chapter 5. This beast from the sea kind of looks like Jesus. 
mean, verse number two says the dragon gave his power, his throne, his authority to the beast. Did we not read in Revelation 12.10 that God the Father gave his power, his kingdom, and his authority to Jesus? Verse 3 of chapter 13 says that one of the beast's heads had a mortal wound. Like he's already been defeated by the cross just like his daddy, the dragon, has been defeated by the cross. He's got a mortal wound in his head. Literally, the Greek says that one of his heads was as slain. It's the exact same wording used to describe Jesus, the lamb, in Revelation chapter 5, that he was a lamb standing as slain. And what do we see here about this beast's mortal wound? It was healed. In other words, even though he's defeated, he's not completely done away with yet, just like his daddy, the dragon. Defeated by the cross, not done away with yet. His mortal wound was healed. This is a kind of a mimicking, a parodying of a resurrection. Just like Jesus, the slain lamb, was raised to life again. If you keep reading Revelation 13 and verse 4, the beast's resurrection brings about worship from the world. Just like the lamb's resurrection brought about, a worship, brought about worship by a multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Shades, can you see this beast is a parody of ultimate reality? He is Satan's counterfeit Christ. This is why many use the word antichrist, antichrist, to describe him. That's a word that you will not find in Revelation. As a matter of fact, you will only find it four times in your entire Bible, all of them in 1st and 2nd John. However, the label does fit because this beast is certainly an antichrist. He's a counterfeit Christ, a cheap knockoff, an imitation that Satan uses to offer alternative salvation. Satan does not just have a parody of Christ right here. He doesn't just have one beast. He's got two. If the first one parodies Christ, who do you think the second one parodies? Let's look at it. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. The rest of the book of Revelation is going to call this beast from the land the false prophet. I'll call him that for the rest of our time this morning because it helps us keep these two distinct. The false prophet. It calls him the false prophet because he works through deceptive words. He may look like a normal lamb right here. You notice he's not creepy and freaky like the other beast we've seen. He's got two horns like a normal lamb. He may look like a normal, innocent lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. He's like a wolf or a dragon in sheep's clothing. And the goal, did you see the goal of his words? The goal of his words is to glorify the beast from the sea, to glorify the counterfeit Christ. Is this not a parody of ultimate reality again? Does our God not have his Holy Spirit? Who John chapter 16 verse 14 says the Holy Spirit works through the word to glorify Christ in all that he does? Is this false prophet, not a parody of the Holy Spirit. I mean, verses 13 and 14 say that this false prophet does signs and wonders to confirm his words about the counterfeit Christ, just like the Holy Spirit empowered signs and wonders through the apostles in the, books of, in the book of Acts to confirm their words about the true Christ, Jesus. Verse 15 says that this false prophet gives breath to an image of the counterfeit Christ. Is that not a parody of how God's Holy Spirit gave breath to the only thing made in the one God's image, mankind? And in verse 16, this false prophet, this fake Holy Spirit, puts a mark on all the beast's followers. Did Revelation chapter 7 not show us that the followers of Christ receive a seal, and that seal is the true Holy Spirit of God. Shades, do you see Satan's parody of ultimate reality? Do you see his parody of the Trinity? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit parodied as dragon, beast, and false prophet. And why? Because Satan is hoping that we can't decipher the difference. 
and that we will fall prey to his parody. That we will believe his Christ can save and we'll believe that his Holy Spirit points the way. Shades. Every single day, Satan is offering to you an easier way than denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. He he is trying to offer you true life at a discounted price. And like my kids with knockoff Legos, we will be sucked in if we aren't equipped to see the difference. So what does this look like in everyday life? Satan working through his false spirit, trying to get you to embrace his false Christ. What what does that look like in our daily physical reality? This is where we need to see the second thing that chapter 13 reveals to equip us to recognize these beasts. Number two, these beasts are a present Roman reality. These beasts are a present Roman reality reality. Before Revelation was written to us, remember it was written to seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century AD. And even then, Satan's beasts were a present reality. We we need to see what these beasts looked like in their everyday lives because that will help us to recognize them in our everyday lives. And when we look at chapter 13, I think we clearly see that in that first century, these beasts were present through the ruling Roman empire. Read with me. Revelation 13. Let's read the first four verses. I saw the beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns, seven heads, 10 diadems on its horns, blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon. You worship the beast, you worship the dragon. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Uh, my, My friend and fellow pastor, Brett Davis, he compares this passage to a political cartoon. Um, A political cartoon of a, a donkey and an elephant in a boxing match. That's a weird image. But all of you immediately know what it's about. Like you immediately are able to make sense of it because it makes sense within our cultural context. I think that within the first century culture, these beastly images of Revelation 13 would immediately make sense to the seven churches as a present Roman reality. If you were living in one of these seven churches in one of their cities in Asia Minor, Rome came to your city from across the sea. And if you watched those, the Roman imperial powers approach by ship, they would seem to rise on the horizon out of the depths, just like a beast coming out of the sea. These ships came to conquer, and they brought with them the rule of the Caesars. And through the years, the empire, this beast, it had many heads, many Caesars, many heads of state, most of them brutal, like beastly horns. Remember, horns and heads in apocalyptic literature are often symbolic of kings and kingdoms interchangeably. And these Roman Caesars, they crowned themselves with blasphemous names as if they were divine. It's like the blasphemous names written on the heads here. Caesar Nero was called a son of God. Caesar Augustus was called the savior of the world. And Domitian, who was reigning when Revelation was written... He demanded to be addressed as Lord and God. Shades, whenever kings or kingdoms or individuals, for that matter, whenever they want to be more than human, that desire ends up turning them into something subhuman, something beastly. That's what we see in Revelation 13. Blasphemous names for the seven heads and ten horns of this leopard-like empire with feet like a bear and mouth like a lion. All of that language is from Daniel chapter 7. If you go back to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel actually sees a vision of four distinct separate beasts that represent four distinct separate kingdoms. But right here, all of Daniel's beasts are rolled into one, as if to say Rome is in the same vein as all the evil empires who have come before. But then there's hope in verse 3. 
Got this evil empire all rolled into one, but then we get hope in verse 3. Did you see it? One of the beast's heads was mortally wounded. Verse 14 will say it was mortally wounded with a sword. It's a mortal wound. It's fatal. This makes it seem like the beast of Rome is on death's doorstep. Many scholars believe, and I agree, that this right here seems to be a reference to Caesar Nero. Nero, who is infamous among all the... Like if I asked you today to name Caesars, Nero is definitely making your top three if he's not your number one. You might go like, you know, I don't know, whoever that guy is that Shakespeare wrote a play about. That one. <laughs> Nero was infamous among Romans, Rome's Caesar heads. He was especially infamous among Christians. He was, he was the first Caesar to really pursue a severe persecution among Christians. It claimed many lives, including those of the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. Like Nero was seared into the conscience of early Christians in a similar way that Hitler is sealed, seared into ours. We're 75 years removed from Hitler. These Christians were 25 years removed from Nero. Like, he became a reference point, just like Hitler is for us. He became a reference point for evil incarnate, a true antichrist who went so crazy that his own senate eventually declared him an enemy of the state. And rather than face arrest, he shoved a sword through his own neck. Committed suicide. Sword to the head. And the next year was absolute chaos in the Roman Empire. The next Caesar, Galba, was murdered in a coup. Caesar Otho after that committed suicide. Caesar Vitellius was murdered by his conqueror, Caesar Vespasian. That year, that was only a year, it became known as the year of the four emperors. It was absolute chaos. The, the sword that pierced Nero's neck surely looked like a fatal wound to the beastly empire of Rome. But once Vespasian began to rule, a new dynasty began, Rome stabilized, and it became stronger than ever. The beast's mortal wound was healed. Rome had always claimed a divine right to eternal rule over all of its citizens, but this apparent resurrection of the empire must have, made that, must have looked like proof of that. You can almost hear people say, who is like Rome? Who can fight against it? Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Those are words of worship. You'll find them all throughout the Old Testament, proclaiming who is like the Lord. But here in Revelation 13, 4, people say, who is like the beast? And that new Flavian dynasty with Vespasian at its head, they were eager to promote worship of beastly Rome. They built temples to the goddess Roma. That's the city of Rome personified as a, as a goddess. Encouraged people to worship Rome herself. They let cities compete for the honor of building a, a temple to worship the emperor himself. In Asia Minor, Pergamum was the first city to do that. Do you remember? We talked about that back in Revelation chapter 2. First city in Asia Minor to build, a temple, uh, to build a temple to worship the emperor. And you remember what Jesus called that city, Pergamum? He called it the home of Satan's throne. This wasn't just happening in Pergamum. If you can remember back in chapters 2 and 3, in all seven cities where all seven of those churches were, the imperial cult was present in one way or another. In other words, for these churches, not just across the sea, but in their own land, it wasn't just a beast that came across the sea. They had beasts in their own land as well. In their own land, these churches had beastly imperial priests whose job it was to make sure you were worshiping the beast of Rome. Is that not the job of the beast from the land, the false prophet? Who, verse 12 says, makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. There's, there's actually a fair amount of testimony from the ancient world of these signs and wonders that these priests, these imperial priests could perform. There's even evidence that through illusion and ventriloquism, they can make it seem like certain idols could talk or move 
walk. Is that not what's described in verse 15? Like, Shades, here's the deal. Whether it was all trickery or demonic activity or some combination of the two, it doesn't matter. They were false prophets all the same. Deceiving people to follow a false Christ who offered a false salvation. Worship Rome. Worship the power and the peace that it brings. It can give you the security that you need. Worship Rome. Worship the riches and the luxury it provides. It can give you the satisfaction that you seek. It all sounds so good until you refuse. Do you remember what was happening to those Christians in those seven churches who refused to worship Rome, who refused to worship the emperor? We read about some experienced physical persecution. In Pergamum, the city of Satan's throne, Antipas, you remember, had been killed. Others we read about experienced economic exclusion. Do you remember that? Uh, Artisan guilds were at the heart of the economic pulse in Asia Minor. And for you to belong to your artisan guild, you had to participate in feasts that were thrown in celebration of your guild's patron god. Feasts where sacrifices and sex were ways of worshiping the patron god of the guild. You remember, there were even false teachers inside these churches telling Christians, it's okay, it's okay to participate in the idolatry and the immorality so that you can stay in your guild. False prophets, beasts from the land. They're not just outside the church, they're inside the church too still to this day, still claiming it is totally okay to participate in the idolatry and the immorality of your culture. The Christians who refused to participate in the idolatry and the immorality, do you remember they could be excluded from their guild, unable to buy and sell? Is that not what happens in verses 15 and 16? Those who won't worship The beast experienced physical persecution or economic exclusion when they won't take the beast's mark, meaning they refuse to belong to the beast of Rome. Their loyalty doesn't lie with Caesar, but with Christ. Shades, can you see these beasts were a present Roman reality? Can you you see how Satan was at work through the false Christ of Rome and its false prophet priest to convince Christians, here's true power and prosperity. Here's true security and satisfaction. Here's where true salvation lies with Rome. It's where you find true life. Can, can, can you see how Satan was using words and wounds to convince these Christians to quit? To convince them God's seal. Chapter 7 said you have the Holy Spirit, God's seal. It will bring you nothing but suffering, not conquering. So instead, take our mark. That will bring you security and satisfaction. That will give you salvation. And shades, Satan's methods have not changed. The unholy trinity, that parody of ultimate reality, They were not just a present Roman reality. They are still a pattern in our reality. This is the third thing chapter 13 reveals to equip us to recognize these beasts. Number three, these beasts are a pattern in our reality. These beasts are a pattern in our reality. In other words, the dragon, Satan, still works through the words of his false prophets to get the world to embrace his false Christs, to take his mark. What exactly does that mean? What is this ever-infamous mark of the beast that I'm saying was a present Roman reality and is still a pattern in our reality? Let's read verses 16 to 18. Everybody roll up your sleeves. Here we go. The false prophet causes all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that none can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast 
or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, or the Greek could be translated, it is the number of mankind. And his number is 666. Now, there has been enough written trying to explain these verses that I imagine we could fill an ocean with the ink. Most of it has been spent guessing at whose name this number means or what kind of mark this could be. As far as the name goes, I've seen calculations for anyone and everyone. Some of the most famous are people like Hitler or Stalin or Ronald Wilson Reagan, who's, I mean, his first, middle, and last name all have six letters, right? And hey, don't forget that when he retired, he moved to 666 St. Cloud Street. True story. His wife had to have the address changed. As far as the mark goes, I've seen guesses that this mark is some kind of tattoo that you get on your hand or your forehead. Perhaps most famously, it's some kind of microchip inserted like under your skin. It's like an interior Apple card, contactless payment. So that you've got to have it, you know, in order to buy and sell. Listen, Shades, even if something like that were to be put into practice, I still wouldn't believe it was the mark of the beast. Because John expects his first century readers to understand what he's talking about. He tells them, verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. That sounds an awful lot like what he says back up in verse 10. Look at it. He says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Revelation has always used that language to first and foremost address its first century audience. It's a call for the one who's saved, the one who has spiritual ears to hear the word that God is communicating to his people. Likewise, verse 18 is a call for the one who is saved, who has spiritual wisdom to understand what God is communicating to his people. God is communicating something to the seven churches in Asia Minor, something they would understand. What is he communicating about this name and this mark? Many scholars... Many scholars think that John is using an ancient practice known as gematria. We've actually talked about this before, back when we did Matthew chapter 1 several years ago. Don't expect you to remember, don't have time to go back to that. But gematria, we've seen it in the Bible before. It's, it's a kind of cryptogram where letters represent numbers. So like A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, so forth and so on. So every letter has a numerical value, so you can take the letters in any word, add them all together, and you can get a sum, a number for a word, or a sum or a number for a name. This was a common practice in both Greek and Hebrew. The question is, what name would this beastly vision bring to mind for these first century Christians? They don't know about Hitler or Stalin or Ronald Reagan. But they do know about the Caesars who personify beastly Rome. Perhaps, perhaps there was even one Caesar who had been seared into their minds as an image of evil incarnate, an embodiment of this mythical beast. Caesar Nero. If you take the Greek name, Caesar Nero, and you put it into Hebrew, and you add up the numerical value of the letters, guess what you get? Six, six, six. You get the same sum if you do the same thing with the Greek word beast. Put it in Hebrew, add it up, six, six, six. Now, I am not, I am not a hundred percent certain that this is what John is doing. Okay? But... If he intends for this number to communicate a specific name, I think that is the best guess. And if it is correct, I don't think it means that John is saying Nero is the beast. It, Nero's dead. 
when John writes, but this beast is not dead. I mean, he's got a wound, but it's been healed. He's gotten up again, and that happens with this beast over and over again. He's wounded, and he looks like he's dead, and he gets up again. Wounded, looks like he's dead, gets up again. Wounded, looks like he's dead, gets up again. John is not pointing us to a specific person, but to a specific pattern. A pattern of the dragon, Satan, using kings and kingdoms of this world to try and crush and conquer the people of God. Egypt, Assyria. Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, Rome, Mao, Stalin, Hitler, ISIS. Beasts like Nero rise and beasts like Nero fall, but the dragon just keeps raising new beastly rulers like him. Beasts like Rome rise and beasts like Rome fall, but the dragon just keeps raising up new beastly nations like them. There is a pattern that we are being called to see, to spiritually calculate. Anyone, anyone could decrypt John's Gematria riddle and figure out the name Caesar Nero. You don't need spiritual wisdom to understand that puzzle, but you do need spiritual wisdom to understand the pattern to see how the dragon is at work in the world through his beast trying to take the place of the triune God. And you need spiritual sight to see through his deception. The dragon cannot imitate God in his triune perfection. He always falls short, like six falls short of seven. Seven, the number that Revelation has used again and again and again to indicate completeness, full perfection. The dragon falls short of that. He's a six. The beast falls short of that. He's a six. The false prophet falls short of that. He's a six. This unholy trinity is a six, six, six. Shades, here's the deal. Even if this number doesn't point at all to the person of Caesar Nero, it points to the pattern of how the dragon is at work in our daily reality through his parody of ultimate reality. Shades, this is a pattern in our reality. The, the dragon still has beastly false Christ in this world. Antichrists. And, and, and when I say that word, I'm not talking about some single individual who is like the world's Thanos, like, like this... this ultimate supervillain at the end of the world. Whether or not I think that that thing exists, we'll talk about that when we get to Revelation 17. But that is not what the Antichrist beast in Revelation 13 represent, represents. I know that because he's got seven heads and ten, ten horns and crowns just like the dragon, symbolizing complete evil, working all its supposed power and authority throughout the entire church age. Don't believe me? Just look at verse 5. Verse 5, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. 42 months, which we have already seen is one of the ways Revelation refers to the entire church age. From Christ's resurrection until his return. And throughout that entire time is when we are told this beast, this Antichrist, is active. This is not about one king. This is not about one kingdom. It is about every king and every kingdom. Did Daniel not see a vision where a kingdom to come came like a rock cut out with no hands and crushed every king and every kingdom that stands right now? This is about every king and every kingdom, every worldly ideology and institution that dares to take the place of Christ. That is Antichrist. Can we calculate the pattern? Can, can we see Satan's present parodies of ultimate reality? Can you identify his current counterfeit Christs who offer imitation salvation? He still has some that look a lot quite like Rome, political saviors. On the left and the right, and everywhere in between, who claim near divine like power, and with their haughty and blasphemous words, constantly claim to be the only ones who can bring peace, 
who can give you the security that you need. And so everybody chants for their candidate who is like our beast. Shades, politics in our country no longer border on worship. For the majority of the masses, they are worship. For they are the way to power, the way to security, the way of salvation. My candidate winning means the salvation of the nation. Otherwise, it's damnation. My candidate winning, that's salvation of the nation, which is surely the promised land or God's kingdom. Shades, it's not. That's beastly idolization. I am not. Hear me, please, please, before all the emails come and the lunches get scheduled. Hear me. I'm not saying we shouldn't be politically active. Far from, be a good citizen. Be politically active. We should be that, but in a way that always, always, always bears witness to the fact that politics don't deserve our worship and they are not our hope for salvation. Shades, every political party screams for you to embrace that kind of idolatry. And if you don't prepare yourself for pressure and persecution, our modern beasts aren't just found in the idolatry of politics. We can look other places. How about in the immorality of our sexuality? Modern sexuality has one moral standard, consent. After that, smorgasbord, choose your own adventure. And Shades, hear me again. I am not saying that Christian sexual ethics should be imposed on unbelievers. Nor am I saying that Christian sexual ethics should be hatefully preached at unbelievers. Yes, we share the gospel. And yes, that means giving a defense for the things that we believe, even what we believe about sexuality. But when we give a defense, 1 Peter 3.15 says we do it with gentleness and reverence, respect. We witness out of love to the point we're willing to lay down our life for the world. I'm not saying that Christian sexual ethics should be imposed on unbelievers. I am saying that in our culture, if you don't affirm and celebrate the modern idolatry of sexual immorality, you will face pressure and persecution, perhaps even economic exclusion. Because beasts always demand worship. Whether idolatry or immorality, politics or sexuality, whether consumerism, nationalism, materialism, whether health and wellness culture, whether fame, riches, luxury, anything that promises you salvation, promises you true life, it demands your worship. It'll give it to you if you'll just worship at its altar. Beasts demand worship. And the world is filled with false prophets to convince you that's okay. Not just false Christs. The world is filled with false prophets to convince you it's okay to worship the beasts of this world. And these false prophets, most of the time, they look pretty harmless, like a little lamb. But they speak like a dragon. You're surrounded by false prophets, false prophets that look as harmless as social media and cable news. Look as harmless as TV shows and talk radio, or even preachers. All of those are paths for words to creep into our ears or sites of power to infect our eyes. False prophets aim to breathe life into the false Christ that they promote and to convince you that their politician or their sexual practice or their product or their way of life can provide you with the path to pleasure, the way to satisfaction, the way of salvation. Shades, can you see these beasts are a pattern in our reality? Can you see how Satan is at work still through false Christ and false prophets to convince you here's where true security and satisfaction, true salvation lies? Can you see how he's pressuring and persecuting? Can you see how he's using words and wounds to convince you that following Christ is not conquering? So quit, he says. Take my mark. 
In other words, let your life, your thoughts, and your actions be marked by your allegiance to anything other than Christ. That's what it means to receive the mark of the beast. To let your thoughts and your actions be marked by allegiance to anything other than Christ. That's why verse 16 says that the mark of the beast is symbolically received on the forehead or the hand. Because that's where Exodus 13 and verse 16 or Deuteronomy 6 and verse 8 said that the people of God were to be marked or even wear the very word of God. You ever seen Jewish people still to this day sometimes wearing on their hand or forehead little boxes that literally contain the word of God? That's in obedience to these passages, which I don't think we're meant to be taken literally, but symbolically, symbolically showing that all of your thoughts, all of your deeds that you do with your hands are to be marked by your allegiance to the Lord, governed by his word. The mark of the beast is not a tattoo or a microchip that belongs to some future age. It is the mark of allegiance in every age. It's not a visible mark. An invisible symbolic sign of ownership. It is another parody of ultimate reality. The mark of the beast is a parody of the seal of our Savior. I know that because right after, right after we read about the beast and his mark, look at Revelation 14 and verse 1. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads, sealed by the triune God. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed for mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, there was no lie found for they are blameless. Here we see the lamb, the one true Christ Jesus, and he is with his entire victorious army. You remember the 144,000 from chapter seven? It's a a military symbol for the entire people of God. And here they are after being conquered. That's what Revelation 13 and verse 7 said happened to them, that they were conquered by the beast. But now we see the reality. They were not really conquered. No, they did what Revelation 12, 11 told us. They conquered the enemy by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. By being conquered, they conquered just like the slain lamb because they follow the lamb wherever he goes. And that path may have taken them through a cross, but now we see where it actually leads to resurrection glory. They're with the lamb on Mount Zion, or in other words, the new Jerusalem. Can you hear the roar of their victory song like thunder? It's just sweet as hearts, which remember we described as being like banjo music. This is a party song. Sweet as harps, they sing the song of salvation because they didn't commit spiritual adultery by going after false gods, false Christs, for they didn't listen to false prophets. They would rather lay down their lives for Jesus like a first fruits sacrifice than embrace any lie of any antichrist. They they would not take his mark, for they bore the true seal of salvation. That's what we see. On their foreheads is the Holy Spirit seal, the name of the Father and the name of the Lamb. In other words, all their thoughts and deeds are marked by allegiance to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Their allegiance is to the one triune God is ours. That's the question posed to us in Revelation 13, 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. In other words, if following the Lamb means captivity, I'll go to captivity. My allegiance is to Him. If following the Lamb means being slain by the sword, bring on the sword. I'll 
follow him wherever he goes because he has equipped me to recognize and reject the beast of this world. And he has sealed me to empower my endurance through every ounce of the beast's wrath. In fact, when the beasts of this world war against me with their words and their wounds, I'm going to use those to show forth the worth of my Jesus to the world. Shades, you are sealed, empowered to do that. You are empowered to cling to Christ, even if that means staring down being slain because you were purchased by the Lamb who was slain. That's the beautiful truth in Revelation 13 and verse 8. It says, all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Shades, before the foundation of the world, your name was written in a book. The title of that book was the book of life of the Lamb who was, past tense, slain. This is before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, Christ was already the Lamb who was slain. In other words, the gospel was already the plan for Christ to save sinners before there were sinners to save. The gospel is not God cleaning up what Satan messed up. Satan has never been in control. All of his schemes have always only served God's perfect purposes, and they still do. Shades, all the words and wounds that Satan's beasts work against you, they serve God's perfect purpose of showing the world the worth of Christ through you and through me. His purposes Always claim victory. Your name is in the book. The victory is won. Your salvation is sealed. That doesn't eliminate your endurance. It empowers it. Shades, Christ has equipped you with the wisdom to recognize the beast of this world. Let the one who has spiritual wisdom understand. And Christ has sealed you to empower your endurance. But the one who has spiritual ears hear. Shades, we've been equipped and empowered so that we may answer the call of Revelation 13.10. Will you answer the call? Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Amen.